This week is week two of our series, as we saw in there, Hands on Deck, Hearts on Fire, where we are looking at the core values of South Shores Church. Because, and we call it this because we believe that to accomplish our mission as a church, to grow fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, that it's going to take everybody. It's going to take everyone in order to accomplish this mission. Everyone's got to be on board and involved. And our actions need to be fueled by a passionate faith in the God who is leading us there. And in 2020, we really have our jobs cut out for us, don't we? And a month ago, there's a Washington Post article, and the lead sentence was just three words, and I think it fits the time very well. It said, Americans are angry. And then that article talks about anger at public officials for shutting things down, or anger because they're not doing enough to stop the virus. There's anger about mask requirements or anger toward people who refuse to wear them. And it kind of sums up this prevailing attitude that we're seeing around us right now that we are angry at anyone who doesn't see things the right way. Well, in the midst of all this anger, my question, the question I want you to consider right now is, where's the church? How is the church doing? In this lengthy social distance, I think we're finding that it's really tough when we're apart to stay united, to stay together. And our anger, our frustration, and our complaints are on the rise too. Over masks or not, over meeting indoors or not, over musical styles, over racial issues, plus I think if we're honest, everybody is frustrated with this new dependence on technology. We're tired of Zoom. We're tired of our phones. We're tired of our TV screens. There's frustration. There's anger. And even seeds of division. And in this context, in this sort of happy time, and now I've stepped on all our toes, including my own, I want to talk about our second value, known by love known by love. Last week, we looked at how we are anchored in God's word, how we are based in it, how we are guided by it, and today, how we need to be people who are known by love. Now, immediately, you might wonder, well, what kind of love? And even that question can rise to a level of debate and divide uh, in the church right now. There are those of us who want to be known by love for God in our indoor gathered worship, they will know we are Christians by our open doors to show that worshiping God is the most important thing to us, that our reputation in our community should be that we listen to God and not man. Others think that we should be known by love for neighbor, by taking steps to keep them safe and healthy. They will know we are Christians by our masks and by our staying at home, by our helping to stop the spread of COVID-19. A reputation in the community for them would be that we care more about our community's health and well-being than our need to worship God in one particular way. So which is it? We'll, they will know we are Christians by our open doors, or they will know we are Christians by our masks. We each kind of tend to fall on some sort of spectrum, but I'd like to propose to you that there is a bigger issue at stake. There is something else that we've been missing in the discussion. You see, the scripture, among the many that we could have picked last year when we were lining out what these values are, the core one that we anchored this value to was John 13, 35. By this, 
all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, Jesus says that the main thing that will let people know who follows him, who are his, is if they have love for each other. Now, let's call that what it is. That's a disappointing statement. Now, don't get me wrong. It's, it's beautiful. It's meaningful. But it's also a little disappointing. And I might be the only one verbalizing this right now, saying this right now, but I'm pretty sure you've probably thought this too. Love for one another? Why couldn't it have been they'll know you're my disciples by the fact that you're the most spiritual and the holiness. There's sort of this heavenly, ethereal quality to all believers. They kind of have this glow about them and everyone say, whoa, that must be a Christian. We'd like that. Or maybe they'll know you're my disciples if you are the smartest. I mean, just imagine this. What if all the top professors, the top doctors, the top scientists, the top 5% in every class was always Christians? Wouldn't that be cool if Christians were, were known for their knowledge both about the world and about God? Or maybe if we were known by prophetic words from God or miracles and healing. Can you imagine if those were our reputation? Or what if Christians were known by their incredible service to the poor? What if neighborhoods just totally turned around simply because Christians moved into them or a church was nearby? What if churches were known as these juggernauts of compassion and justice? Any one of these options, it feels like if God were to supernaturally just kind of place that into the heart of the Christian, and it could be a marker, or if we had that clear emphasis that that's the primary thing that we as Christians were supposed to be about, it seems like those were our calling cards, there'd be some pretty incredible implications. That's not what Jesus pointed to. Instead, Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are to be known by the love that we have within the church body. Now wait, aren't Christians supposed to love, love God first with all that they are? Absolutely. Aren't they supposed to love their neighbor as themselves? Yes. Aren't they called to love our enemies? Right on. But... For some reason, Jesus says that what we're known by, the reputation that will point others to Christ as us, as the ones who follow him, is love within the church. Jesus declared this the night before he was crucified, and I think the church has been struggling with this idea ever since. So this morning, I want, us to, take, I want to take us to a chapter in the Bible that addresses this idea of what love looks like in the midst of division. A look at what love must be in the midst of disagreement and real life circumstances. Now, it's a chapter that's commonly used at weddings and Valentine cards, but was originally intended for the church to know two things. That love is essential and to know what love looks like in the church. It's to see love as important and to see how love acts. And here's the big idea. When love's at our center, when love drives how we treat and even disagree with each other, when real love defines how we relate in the church, we shine for Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul is writing to this church that is filled with division. Division over what leader to follow, 
division over what the emphasis in the Christian life should be, and division over preferences related to status and background and means. Paul writes to a church divided, and 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he is going to teach them and us that love is essential to Christian practice. And then he shows what love looks like in a church filled with differences. So if you do have your Bibles or devices or you're at home, please turn with us to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know, in recent months, part of the big debate has been over what is essential. What does society need to keep it from grinding to a halt? Well, Paul begins this chapter with everything that would have seemed essential to a church at Corinth. Everything that would have appeared impressive and important. The cool things to be known by as individuals and as a church. And though they seem impressive, Paul's going to tell us that without love, they are nothing. Because it's love that is essential. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And these little hypothetical scenarios that Paul draws uh, up, he draws out these very gifts and interests that the Corinthian church was so focused on. The very things that they were guilty of valuing over each other. The things that they and maybe we would want to be known by. And Paul says, they're worthless without love. Personal spirituality without love, noise. Hidden insight into the things of God without love, nothing. A boldness to trust God where he will lead you with an incredible faith without love, non-essential. Giving away all you have to the point of putting yourself out onto the streets without love gains you nothing. Now, the Corinthians thought that these other issues were the bigger deal, but really the thing that should have impressed them, the essential of essentials, is a Christian's active love for one another. Now, it doesn't mean these other things are bad, not at all. Uh, Paul has spent time showing their importance, but it does mean that we can aim for good things and miss out on the best things if love isn't what drives and defines what we do. For the Corinthian church, it was an emphasis on these different spiritual gifts. But for us right now in our church, it's different. It might be masks and openings. It might be choir and band. It might be how we handle racial relations as a church or how we engage with the poor. Or it might be something else entirely that right now is just sitting under your skin. Whatever it is that's giving you frustration, whatever it is that's uh, giving you anger, it's causing it to rise up or kind of move towards division. I want you to hold that thing out. I want you to keep it in mind as we talk about what this love looks like. Because while I'd love to personally solve all those issues with you, what I'm concerned about today is how do we treat one another when we disagree? 
How do we treat one another when we have different cares or focuses or even when we've been hurt by others in the process? When real love defines how we relate in the church, we shine for Jesus. So the question we have to ask is, how do we love one another? I want you to imagine with me, if you're an Instagram type, or maybe insert magazine uh, when I say Instagram, but you open up your Instagram, and you see in your feed a gorgeous picture of the most delicious-looking cake, all right? A chocolate meringue Mont Blanc cake, and the picture physically makes you to salivate. It motivates you to want cake, not just any cake, that cake. It convinces you that you need that cake. But if you take that picture with you to the grocery store to buy the things you need to make that cake, you're kind of out of luck. The picture isn't going to get it done. Sometimes you need a picture, and sometimes you need a list. Picture motivates, but the list helps you get it done. Well, in these next verses we're going to read, Paul's going to give us a list of what love does and what love does not do. And Paul's concern is how love demonstrates itself within the church community. This is how we're supposed to act or not act toward each other in the church. Look with me in verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I want to begin with those first two positive statements of what love does. Love waits patiently. Paul is referring to waiting patiently for others. Too often when we hear patience, oh God, give me patience, it's, it's really we're asking for patience to wait on God or patience to wait on our circumstances. But Paul is talking specifically about people in the church waiting patiently, acknowledging the importance of God's timing in their life. Real love recognizes that it takes time for others to respond to what God is doing in them. Real love doesn't rush. It doesn't break into your living room like it's the Kool-Aid man. Oh, yeah. You remember that guy? No? Okay. Well, what does that look like in our church? I think it looks more like listening and asking questions than making declarative assertions. I think it might look like allowing people the space to, to change and not cutting off the relationship. It might even look like putting up with wrong answers as you trust that others are on a journey to find the right ones. Love waits patiently. Next, love gives kindness. You know, the love of a Christian toward his church family is supposed to be one of active kindness, being thoughtful and helpful in a pleasant way. It can mean like looking for opportunities to serve others and even giving good to those who have given you harm. Pastor Haddon Robinson once said, patience and kindness go together like a couple in a good marriage. To be patient with somebody and to respond by being kind to them, that's a triumph of love. I think kindness in our church would look like finding ways to build up those that we disagree with. 
I think kindness would look like wanting to understand the best version of the position on the other side. Kindness is going beyond what is expected by convention to actually show you care more about the person than their agreement with you. Because love gives kindness. Now we could possibly stop there because if we took the time simply to bring patience and kindness into each of our interactions, whether in person or on the phone or online, it would guide us into something really special, real love. And when real love defines how we relate in the church, we shine for Jesus. But Paul thought it necessary to tell us the many things that love does not do to help us too. And so for time's sake, I'm going to kind of take these two by two. So love doesn't burn with envy or brag. Love is not upset when others succeed, and it doesn't rub its own success in other people's faces. It's not threatened by other ideas and groups, and it doesn't live for its own ego. Both of these, envy and bragging, led the Corinthian church into division, saying, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, creating these factions within. And today we have to fight these sins as we see different people or other churches or pastors that we think, oh, I align with what they're doing. And we're tempted to divide over an ideology or a person. And then we're tempted to brag once the COVID reports, whether it be high or low, as long as they confirm our point of view, we'll say, I told you so. I knew I was right. But love calls on us to hold off and to find another way. Love doesn't burden with envy or brag. Love doesn't act rudely or seek itself. Love doesn't seek attention and personal gain without considering others. These two actions that, of love represent that love is considerate of others, both in the social way, like manners, being courteous, being polite, but also in our core motivation. Love is not self-centered. It's willing to lay down its rights for the sake of others. Both actions force us to have a sort of sensitivity to any person that's not in our own skin. This means that in our church, we don't need to be people who cut off each other's sentences. That's a kindness of conversation. But we also need to be people who are willing to cut off our own personal preferences. This means that we can then worry less about whether the church will fit all my preferences and we can make space for other bigger questions like what will reach the lost? What will grow believers and empower them for mission? What will honor God and love our neighbors? What will edify our church and evangelize our community for the next 50 years? Those are the questions that we wanna ask and we can with love because love doesn't act rudely or seek itself. Next, love doesn't anger quickly or track hurts. With these ones, Paul is recognizing that Christian love doesn't happen in a vacuum. It does get hurt. It does get wronged. But real love is not thin-skinned, and it doesn't keep track. It doesn't jump to respond, and it doesn't make a list of injuries. Love has the ability to wait and, when necessary, to move on through forgiveness. At Corinth, there was a problem of some people that were parading their freedoms in front of others and hurting them. But there was an equal problem that others who were getting hurt were focused on nursing their anger and nursing their hurt. And so Paul, enlisting both, asks, is either side really 
showing love for the other. Now remember, we're not talking about little trifle things because you have probably been hurt by how someone recently has spoken on one of these issues that matters a lot to you. Maybe even our church has taken actions recently that if you're honest, you're like, that made me pretty upset. And I'm not saying today, I'm not saying that there is no response. I'm not saying love means rolling with everything and going along with whatever. I'm saying that love should guide, should direct, should temper our manner of response. It, it doesn't change the facts. It may not even change our position, but it will change the way that we interact with those we disagree with especially with those that we share a savior and a common community of faith. Love doesn't anger quickly or track hurts. Next, love doesn't rejoice in misfortune, but it rejoices with truth. It doesn't wish harm on the one it disagrees with or the person who hurt them. It takes no pleasure in someone else's failures, not even when those failures would actually justify your position. Instead, love shares truth's joy. Love's not interested in protecting itself from truth. It desperately wants to find it, discover it, and celebrate it. Sometimes we talk about truth and love like they were opponents, when in reality, they are best friends. Knowing truth without love, as Paul's pointed out, is, is nothing. But love, he says, it binds itself to truth. It rejoices over it by its very nature. One doesn't cancel out the other. The Jesus way is to have them both in play at all times. And so when it comes to these disagreements and divisions, love says that it will enter the conversation willing to be wrong. It can be honest and open, and it doesn't have to be defensive. It can have an honest discussion ready to celebrate the truth that comes out. Because love doesn't rejoice in misfortune, but with truth. Finally, Paul finishes his list with, with four very important ongoing actions of love. He says that love bears all things. But to put that really in sort of the active imagery that Paul uses, I'm going to change the wording a little bit. It's love never tires of support. You see, the original wording uses this imagery of a roof where Christian love uh, within the church is a love that continues to hold up others their burdens, their troubles, their hardships. It's a love that can be counted on. It's a love that keeps on. I don't know if you remember, but if, if you have become a member of South Shore's church or when you did, you committed to the growth and maturity to the rest of the church membership. And that is how we see this. A love that sees beyond little annoyances and contrasting opinions and instead looks around and sees a brother, a sister that needs your support to help them to continue to grow in godliness. And that love never tires of support. That love also never loses faith. It retains an eagerness to believe the best about the other person. It knows that God is committed to the growth and the maturity of believers. God is making them more like Christ so we can give them the benefit of the doubt. This is so important when we have disagreements in the church so that instead of assuming the reason that they disagree with you is because they don't love Jesus like you do, 
Instead of thinking it's a lack of courage or it's a lack of care or, man, maybe they're not even Christian, we can hold off judgment, interested to see how these other Jesus-loving people came to a different conclusion than you did. Love never loses faith. Love also never exhausts hope. Bible commentator Leon Morris calls this a refusal to take failure as final. It's a confidence in the ultimate triumph of the grace of God. Paul writes these letters to these seriously messed up church because he's confident in God that God can help them change. He has an optimism about their path that's ahead. And you know what? Hope is an antidote to anger and impatience and frustration that you might feel right now. It helps you remember that God is still working in your life and he's still working in the lives of others. So let it lead you to pray for them and let that hope temper how you talk to and care for those you disagree with. Love never exhausts hope. And the final one in Paul's list is that love never gives up. It perseveres, it endures, it moves the ball forward, it sticks it out in the thick of battle. Love never gets overwhelmed, but rather it always plays its part no matter the circumstances. Our temptation, of course, is to head for the exit signs or here in the parking lot, the exit row, um, to press the eject button, to get out, to cut off the relationship, to walk away from the conversation, to refuse to pick up the phone and make that call to find a new church where they do it the way I want so that I can find people who do it the right way. But when we do, we always risk missing out on what God was going to do in us and in others in that situation. We miss out on the importance of the difficult distance that God uses to grow us. It's not an easy walk and God never said it would be but love never gives up. So love waits patiently, love gives kindness, love doesn't burn with envy or brag, it doesn't act rudely or seek itself. Love doesn't anger quickly, it doesn't track hurts. Love doesn't rejoice in misfortune, but rejoices in truth. Love never tires of support, it never loses faith, never exhausts hope, never gives up. And we think, wow, <laughs> woo! that's a lot. That's not me. That's too much to ask. And today, I'm not actually asking you to become all that, at least not immediately. But I am asking you to envision, to imagine how it would change the way you dialogue, change the way how you disagree, the way you treat one another within the body of Christ within the church. Can you see it? Or does it still feel like a shopping list of ingredients? Because Jesus, just before he said, all people would know you are, are my disciples if you love one another, he also told us that he is our pattern. He is our model. He is our example, our picture. In John 13, 34, he says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. You see, Jesus' love for us enables our love and inspires our love. Paul's given us the list, the ingredients, but Jesus reminds us of the glorious picture that we are aiming for. 
Jesus laid his life down for us. Jesus went to the cross in our place, taking our shame and our guilt and our punishment because of his demonstration, his action of love. Jesus waits patiently. Jesus gives kindness. He doesn't do the things that love doesn't do. And Jesus never tires of support, never loses faith, never exhausts hope, never gives up, which is good. Because honestly, he's dealing with the most difficult people of all, me and you. But he extends that patience He gives that kindness. He doesn't rush to rub it in our face, but keeps holding us up, moving us along, and he will get the job done in us. But we don't just automatically get there. To quote Pastor Ty said, just because you get older doesn't mean you get more spiritually mature. Spiritual maturity is a choice and you have to be intentional. Paul calls on us to choose Jesus's way of love, to submit ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Not to earn Jesus's love, but to see that his love for us gives us a sure hope that he will finish what he has started. Now you might've noticed, you maybe can see it here, certainly those of you at home, that our illustration for this value is a lighthouse. Now, a lighthouse is an incredible innovation. Great care goes into choosing its location, its height, its strength to withstand the elements of the sea in order to protect and save lives from destruction on unseen rocks and reefs. Lighthouse has a very important job. Yet the source of light for a majority of these towers for centuries were simple, small flames. Take the Bell Rock Lighthouse off the coast of Scotland, for example. It is today still standing as the world's oldest surviving lighthouse that's out in the water. Sometimes it has waves up to 16 feet of this lighthouse. Completed back in 1810, its initial light source was 24 oil lamps, seven on each side, so only seven really shining the light in one direction, and they had three-quarter inch wicks. That's not a lot of light for something that is so incredibly important. But here's the key. Each one of those lamps was fitted with a lens. And the lens would focus the light, would concentrate it, would strengthen it, and would make that light visible 35 miles away. The light is essential but the lens is what makes it known. In the same way, it may seem like us loving each other in our conversations and expectations and our posts and discussions and disagreements, it seems pretty small, like a three-quarter inch thick wick. And it might feel like we're missing out on the bigger issues and we're just kind of together. But what starts inside finds its way out. Jesus said that what's in the heart comes out of the mouth. What starts in the church comes out into the world. Light the lamp of love for your brothers and sisters in the church and let God worry about the kind of lens that he will use to make sure it is known outside. When real love defines how we relate in the church, we shine for Jesus. 
Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that in Jesus you give us the picture and in your word you also tell us how to go shopping for it, how we can begin to cultivate these characteristics of Christ-likeness in our own lives, how we can start to cut out the, the things the, that really divide us and, and hurt us as a community, and we can start to emphasize the kindness, the patience, the support, the care that we can give to one another, even in the midst of disagreement, even in the midst of our own hurts. Lord, help us to be a community that shines brightly and let us do great works of service and let us know God and the world well. And Lord, let us love one another as we do it. Let us love one another as we do it so that you might shine into the darkness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.